I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. It's out! The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga is now available everywhere books are sold. This is the book for every yoga teacher, studio, and practitioner who wants to incorporate an inclusive practice to yoga. It's available on my website, laraland.us, and everywhere books are sold. If you're loving this podcast, you are going to love this book. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Welcome to a very special, possibly triggering, very touching, and very, very educational an important episode of the Beyond Trauma podcast. This episode, I am in conversation with Bintu Giara, a writer, advocate, doula, first-year medical student at Brown University's Alpert Medical School, and the editorial lead of leading maternal health organization, Mama Clo. During her undergraduate career at Brown University, she majored in medical anthropology led the Ivy League's premier collective of trained doulas and birth advocates, and wrote and published editorial pieces on bioethical issues to major platforms. Earlier this year, she was awarded a sexual health and advocacy research grant and will work alongside medical professionals at Alpert Medical School to infuse the principles of birth work into medical curricula. So like I said, this was a, a sensitive one. You'll hear Bintu's definition of birth trauma. And I think many of you will say, I had that. I have that. I know for me, I still can well up when I talk about the birthing process, some of the agencies that were taken away from me when I wanted to give birth the way I wanted to. And, you know, it's often said, well, you ended up with a healthy, happy child, and that's true, but it doesn't always take away the hurt of how one got there. Well, I'll leave it at that. Uh, There are some, you know, outstanding and heart-wrenching statistics in this podcast. And like I said, some really deep education around maternal death rates and birth trauma. And this was an important topic that I've wanted to get out for a long, long time. I really hope you'll take a listen. I hope you'll share this one because it's very important. This education could save lives. Okay, here we go. Welcome, Bintu Jara. Thank you so much for making this time to be here. I know you are very busy. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. I'll I'll be honest, I'm nervous. Birth trauma is something that is personal to me and a topic that I've really wanted to hit on this podcast for a while, but also wanted to kind of wait till the right person emerged and, you know, until I was ready a little more to talk about it. I think 
it's personal to many of us women um, or pregnant people. And then, of course, especially maternal health being a major issue for people of color. And we, we have to talk about that today. Maybe you can tell me about you and how you got interested in this topic, a little bit about you know your story and, and maybe even weave in how you got involved with Mama Glow and about that organization. Oh, okay. Perfect. I'd love <laughs> yeah. So right now I'm Mama Glow's editorial lead. And basically what we do on the editorial side is kind of stuff like this illumination. So just bringing these issues to the forefront of people's minds, right? Because there's a lot of ways they function that people don't necessarily think about. So we'll see things on the news and I'm sure we'll get into this later, but you'll see things on the news and it's like, oh my God, this is horrible, right? About like the state of maternal health, but people don't necessarily know about the inner workings that are being unveiled in that moment. They think of these things as like one-off. So Mm, through Mama Glow editorially is to talk about it and play on that importance of storytelling. So I'm a writer a doula. I do consider myself to be an advocate. I bring mostly the teachings of medical anthropology, the principles of reproductive justice, and the like to a lot of my writing that I do on what we call the Mama Zine, so on the Mama Glow website. And I just love exploring these kinds of bioethical issues. And the goal eventually, right, is to move from a place of theory to action. So that's pretty much what the goal has been. I got involved with Mama Glow through college, actually. In under, during undergrad at Brown, I led Doulas at Brown, which is the first collective that we know of college-trained doulas. So Latham and the Mama Glow Foundation, we feel so privileged to have received doula training from them. And the relationship kind of evolved from there because we had so many passionate people, including myself, who just wanted to get more involved with the organization. I had already had some writing experience and I felt really inspired by my doula training. Equal parts inspired and like indignant, I would say, like just realizing how many women and birthing people are like subject to experiences that they just don't have to have. Yeah. So quite frankly, I came to the training sort of deciding just from like personal, the personal experience of simply hearing about it. Right. And that's the part that like is a little jarring to me, but simply hearing other people's birth stories made me think that like, okay, well, I don't think I want to be a mother. And you go through things like doula training or just simply understanding like, the fundamentals of birth, the physiological processes that underlie like, you know, a longitudinal process like pregnancy, childbirth and things like that. And you hear so many stories and like you learn like one, the United States maternal health landscape as it stands needs to be changed. And then also on the other side of that, you learn that like birth is not supposed to be inherently traumatizing. Like Mm. that is something that we have been taught. So finding ways to get involved editorially to illuminate those issues, that was kind of how 
it started after the doula training. And then I just, you know, you get so passionate and I just kept pushing pieces out. I would talk to Latham. I'm like, here's this thing that we should talk about. I know that you illuminated this before in the doula training. Let's write about it. Let's talk about it. And that's kind of how I'm here. So at medical school, I'm honoring the same kind of principles currently on a grant, thinking about how we can infuse these like principles of reproductive justice and birth work into the curriculum so that future doctors, you know, who are going to be a part of many birthing people's care teams, you know, know look out for these things and like just contribute to better outcomes. Okay. So yeah, I have lots of questions about that. <laughs> First, just to back check a tiny bit, just for our listeners who don't know, you know, what is Mama Glow? Maybe you can give us like a little brief of Mama Glow founded by Latham, Latham Thomas. Um, so some people might be familiar with that name, some people not, but maybe just a little blurb for folks who don't know about Mama Glow. Perfect. So Mama Glow is New York City's premier doula and maternity lifestyle brand. So Latham through Mama Glow offers this amazing globally recognized online doula training program, which became online in like recent years. It's kind of amazing the story, but it basically started in her little rosy Brooklyn basement and evolved into something that has had courses all around the world and trainings all around the world. So during the COVID-19 pandemic, that was unfortunate, right? Because everyone was inside. Yeah. But she found a way to take that in-person format and make it so that people can still have access to this knowledge, even online. And that grew into this huge online platform. And I know that she's still doing in-person trainings, but that's pretty much the evolution of Mama Glow. So they offer trainings and gatherings. They run, they offer pro bono doula services mm-hmm. through their partnership with Carol's daughter. There's a lot of other amazing things coming up. So working with health systems like Montefiore, which is in the Bronx, through a partnership, like working on a grant there where they can offer, yeah. they can have the doulas that are trained through Mama Glow be a part of a plan to improve maternal health outcomes for some of our most vulnerable populations. So that's just, yeah. you know, some examples of the kind of work that the Mama Glow Foundation does. No, awesome. That's that's very, very helpful. You know, training lots of doulas and also really interweaving this advocacy work. It sounds like in the training, something that, you know, might not be happening in other doula trainings is a lot more sharing about the kind of traumas that many people are going through in their pregnancies. It sounds like that opened eyes for you and made you want to advocate more. And so many, so many doulas receiving that training are getting more educated and sharing that. And it seems like uh, Mama Glow, in addition to training so many doulas, is really doing a ton of advocacy work. Yes. Yeah. And, and Latham has certainly a lot of relationships where that have allowed her to get this message more out there and people can definitely look into that. Maybe you can share about, you know, why folks would want a doula. What is the status like now of the way doctors are trained? Why is that leading to so much trauma in the pregnancy and birthing process? You know, how you want to retrain them 
And in the meantime, what some of, you know, these Mama Glow trained doulas are doing to kind of offset that. And maybe uh, I'll share later a little bit about my experience with a, a doula, not from Mama Glow, unfortunately. And I wish <laughs> maybe that I had gone that direction. No, I can't wait to hear. So I'm sorry. What's the first part of the yeah, question? That was a lot. That was a lot. Okay. <laughs> so um, the kind of what is the state now of the way that your doctor has likely been been trained, that your OBGYN has likely been trained? And why might that there be some gaps there that could be leading to birth trauma? Okay. Amazing. So there's an amazing book on this, just to preface with that, that actually recently just came out called Birth Control by Ali Yarrow, where she just unpacks all of this. Okay. The sad part is it starts long before our ob are even trained to become doctors, right? So it's the way we're taught about just normal functionings of the female body, right? So it starts with in your health class, for example, right? The way that we learn in sex ed about periods is in a way that makes it seem like the female body and the natural processes that it kind of like carries out are these pathologies that must be managed, right? Mm -hmm. So you're learning about things like periods, you know, you're learning about things like ovulation and you're like, oh, you put it in your head. And like, even in my sex ed class, like, I think I was like maybe like eight or nine, you know, when they first have the person come in. And I remember my sex ed instructor did not really mention the bleeding part. And she did make it a point to talk about all the unpleasant aspects though, right? Like she's like, it's called puberty because you're going to stink, you know, you're going to start growing body hair, all of these things that make it seem like the female body, the feminized body just inherently is out Mm -hmm. of whack and must be managed. So I think, you know, where I'm going with this, but these thoughts are like deeply ingrained, like they're woven into our cultural fabric. Like we are taught that the female body is something that must be managed. So then you flash forward to medical professionals who honestly want to do the best job, but the way they're taught about pregnancy is that it's something that must be managed, right? Like you have this framework where it's like, there's a pathology and there's a cure. And you also have these frameworks, which we learn in doula training and we learn through Mama Glow. Latham talks about this all the time, but you're applying this almost like structural, the kind of like bureaucracy of medicine, I'm sorry, to like something that is inherently just like unstructured, right? It's beautiful because it's unstructured. It's beautiful Mm -hmm. because it's not something that needs to be managed. Like women and birthing people were given birth like out in the wild, right? And granted, like, yes, like there were dangers there too, but it was something that was happening. And it yeah. obviously was able to like sustain generations of people up until this point, right? So they're taught that like, okay, like pregnancy and childbirth are these things that we must manage. So what we're seeing is a lot of medical students are not actually taught. We don't get training when we go through our rotations, right? And then we go on to like residency if we want to become obstetricians or gynecologists, the births that we see are not physiological births, right? 
because sometimes like necessarily there will be interventions because the person requests them and that's valid. And sometimes there will be interventions because the person needs them. But what's happening is people are taught that this is just a part of the process, right? So when you give someone say Pitocin, because you're like, your labor is simply not progressing fast enough. <laughs> that teaches a medical student that training, that's simply what you do. If the baby is not, if it doesn't seem like the contractions are like moving forward at a rate that just works for the physician who wants to get out of there or the care team who just wants to get out of there and right. turn on, you know, the beds, it's like you just administer Pitocin, you know? There's a lot of, (laughs) exactly. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of institutional inertia in medicine. Like things are changing, but a lot of us has, have been taught that this is just how things are. You administer Pitocin, you give them other things, and then you just move the birth along so that things can just move forward. And we've seen the implications of that, right? So as of this morning, and I saw you shared the family, the poor family in Clayton County, who unfortunately the infant's head got like, you know, virtually like pulled off. Although I don't know the full details of the case, I can almost guarantee it was an issue tied to rushing. And that's why that family has been, have been moving to file a lawsuit, right? Because like when you decide that baby's not coming down fast enough for you and you go in there with forceps, that's the risk. So that's kind of what I mean when we talk about how there are a lot of things that we treat as like these jarring one-off events, but they actually speak to a lot of sinister things that go on that we simply regard as normal. We don't think mm. about the implications. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying. It's like there's these moments where, you know, these cases come into the press. Maybe we'll talk about Tori Bowie as well and some others, but they are what you're you're saying is like this is indicative of processes that are part of the way that we've pathologized birthing. And you know, you're you're grabbing this one case, but you want to look at what are all the things that are so set in the industry of birthing that are leading to these these outcomes. Exactly. It's almost like going either way, like either, you know, too much intervention, like in this case, too much rushing, right? Or people not being heard that they're feeling, especially Black women, that they're, you know, something's wrong and being ignored and not giving enough intervention. It almost seems to be these extremes of one way or another. Exactly. And which are all shaped by things, to your point, like, Structural racism, implicit bias, whose needs do physicians naturally feel like they should be working to anticipate? Because even that is is a luxury that shouldn't be a luxury, right? Like every pregnant person in the hospital, every person that's about to give birth deserves, especially like there will be a point where like your faculties are slightly like, you know, during the process, just like not fully there, right? Like there's going to be a point where like, you're not even fully present. And so you want a care team that thinks that it's a baseline for them to be able to anticipate what you need, or at least honor what you said you would need when you were fully present to make decisions for yourself, right? This is such a good point. And a personal point to me, I think, you know, many of us, we spend a lot of time planning 
like how we would want it to go down, you know, what interventions we would want in which circumstances, basically a birth plan. And absolutely, once you're in the system, well, a couple of things, you know, once you're in labor, like you just said so eloquently, you know, you're not in the same mental state that you were in when you were making those plans. And it becomes very easy to be convinced to do something else. Exactly. You know, when I found out I was pregnant, I really wanted a birth center. I'm a Taurus and a very middle of the way kind of. <laughs> I'm like an Eastern, Western, both like I wanted to do my yoga moves, you know, and I wanted my bath and like, but I also wanted to be like attached to a hospital. So I wanted like this kind of both worlds. And you know, I mean, I'm sure you know, this would seem to me to be a, a kind of normal request. I'm not so different from, there's probably a, a good amount of people like me who would mm -hmm. want, you know, they want to do as much natural as possible and also want the comfort of knowing if there's an emergency, like there's Nikki right there. And right. are there any birthing centers? There was one, which I tried to get into, which closed while I was pregnant. So slowly by slowly, in my personal experience, choices were taken away. It seems uh, nearly impossible. And maybe, you know, I'm wrong. Maybe you can tell me, but it, it seems like you either have to go the kind of home birth route or you're, you're getting into that whole medicalized system. Thank you so much for naming that as well, because I didn't even think about how that too is an issue for people who do want the best of both worlds. And they do want the comfort and security that comes with a birthing center and then also having a hospital attached just in case things go wrong, right? Because there is a chance that things can go wrong. So what we have is like kind of like this like faulty dichotomy that I feel like some people have set up where it's like, if you speak on wanting to go the natural route in any way, there's almost this air of like ridicule, or just by design, it doesn't seem realistic, right? Like in the state I'm currently in, I'm in Rhode Island, there are no birthing centers. So what happens for the person who's like, well, I don't really want a high intervention birth. I want to be virtually like swaddled in comfort before. Yeah. I want to be able to take out my comfort measures. I want to be able to engage a doula in a way that like doesn't involve, because let's be honest, it's very hard for doulas to engage with care teams sometimes because the work is so delegitimized at every point mm. of the process, right? Yeah. But yeah, like what happens for people who they do want the security of knowing that like that kind of medical care is available when I want it, right? And... I want the security that in some ways like should be just a natural part of the birthing process. Like you're surrounded, you know, by safety and love and like community in a lot of cases, right? Mm. Like you see a lot of home births where the person's partner will be in the room or a close family member. So yeah. Yeah. Very hard to get both and very important what you pointed to about the ridicule. You know, I can only imagine if I had said I'm going to, you know, have a home birth, the kind of pushback I would have even gotten from family members and so forth. And I get it, you know, there's, there's a lot of fear, but then again, maybe it's because 
most folks don't know how much training and education doulas have and how much they can often do that doctors can't and won't. Yeah. And how by design, right? Like in medical training, like I think sometimes other members of the care team, like physicians, sometimes assume that like there's this intentional desire to take over like the role and save the world. And I'm like, birth worker burnout is a real thing. Through Mama Glow, we actually just at the beginning of this year released a brief on some research that was done on birth worker burnout. And what you'll find is like many doulas, as much as like we're kind of being lauded as like the solution to like, you know, black maternal mortality and maternal mortality overall, they don't proudly bear that like burden. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to call it a burden, but they don't like doulas are very much aware that this is not a job that birth workers can do by themselves. So I think there's also this assumption of doulas kind of coming in and taking over the role that already creates the foundation for so much animosity Mm. to exist between physicians and doulas, because there's this idea that like the work that they're doing can't be done in conjunction with each other. Right. It's like we can all work to support the health and safety of this birthing person as they, you know, get to the other side of like birth. I think that's an issue too. Like a a lot of miscommunication, a lot of journalistic decisions as well that make it seem like birth work is designed to ultimately completely like replace, you know, like systems as they stand. Like obviously they have to change and the head goal is to have these systems like kind of wrap around them, right? Like the goal is not like, yes, we do need to like change things. And the goal is that as those things are changing and once those, those changes, I mean, I don't think changes could ever be finalized. We should always think of ways to do better, but the goal with birth work advocacy and all of that is to wrap around systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think what you're pointing to is, uh, which I definitely saw reflected in my personal experience, this kind of animosity in the room between the doctor and the doula. Uh, There's a sense, which is, you know, awful for the laboring person (laughs) when you feel like the people that are supposed to be on your team that are not getting along or wanting each other there, mainly the doctors not, not really wanting the doulas there. And of course, again, you're, you're in a, already a very, very vulnerable state there. And the ideal would be that these different people on your team are working together to support you and and that's driven by the best, you know, needs and outcomes for you at that moment, not by their own agendas and egos, unfortunately. Emphasis on the ego part. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, starting my medical training and stuff and this doctor, I'm so sad I can't remember his name, but he kind of aptly spoke to the importance of community-based care and kind of like why hospitals should be engaging with again, surrounding structures who make it their mission to support people. And he talked about that kind of like ego that exists in medicine and how there's so much messaging that's fed to us about how exceptional we are and like we're going to save lives and everything. But there's a lot of danger that comes with having the arrogance, to your point, to assume that like we can do that by ourselves. Mm. I think just like part of my medical training is like, okay, how do I like resist this messaging? How do I 
Yeah. You know, like I'm grateful that I at least am coming in doula trained. Yeah. So that I can actively think about the ways that medical training sometimes calls on us to like leave those principles of community community based care at the door because I'm sure that absolutely plays into the mistreatment of birthing people within the hospital setting. Yeah, so well said. And, and you know, just so people that maybe haven't been through this, you know, you're you're going in and and especially like many of us who, you know, a lot of folks that listen to my podcast are in like the yoga world or like, you know, very in tune with their bodies, right? So we know when something's wrong, you know, we have a, a sense. And, you know, even if it's your first time laboring, you know, you just kind of know we, all of us, we all have an intuitive sense, right? But then we're, we're the, this potentially the ego of, of the doctor and everything comes into play and it, it can really have some negative outcomes. This right that you're in a very vulnerable position there. You're coming in, you might be feeling something's off. But then you have this quote unquote expert who's talking very quickly. Would you say, uh, you know, agree with me that, you know, when you're laboring, you're kind of in a trauma state. (laughs) That's what we learn. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, can you, can you share a little more about that? Yeah. So through doula training, we do learn that there's kind of a point. And I think we can talk about what birth trauma is too. So I want to lean on like the March of Dimes definition, which names birth trauma as pretty much any physical or emotional distress that a birthing person may experience during or after childbirth. So that means in the U.S., (laughs) most people have some sort of birth trauma, right? That means that like here, it's like pervasive. Wow. And to your point, the conditions for that to happen are already there, right? Because like you said, there's already a power differential in the hospital setting most of the time, right? If you're not like a doctor yourself, then your knowledge and expertise about your own body is pretty much overridden to say the least. Like there's this assumption that because I have the experience, you know, in the preclinical kind of aspect of it, I sat down, I learned about my reactions, I learned about DNA and birth and this and that. And then the clinical experience of like interfacing with people and like still, again, doing some of the behind the scenes, like you learn about the human body and things like that. There's this assumption that because we've done all of that work, that our medical knowledge ultimately overrides, overshadows, supersedes anybody else's understanding of their bodies. And I will say that like gender identity does play a lot of like a a huge role. Sex plays a huge role. And that's where implicit bias comes in. I think there's a natural tendency that women tend to have to assume we often bow down to authority. It's like, if you're Mm -hmm. saying this about my body and like, you're like telling me, okay, this is not what's going on. Yeah. I'm just going to nod my head and say that this is, you know, and we see it with like other like feminized disorders, like PCOS, right? Endometriosis, like you're in hysterics, just like sit down and be quiet so I can get back to my structured process. Mm -hmm. There's no way you know what's going on with your body because I did the eight plus or whatever, however many years of training to know more about your body than you know about your own body that you've been living in all your life, right? Like it's a violent (laughs) kind of ideology that's so commonly held. Yeah. And I wanted to just 
speak to, you know, even as much as you prepared yourself and, you know, you're a strong feminist and you know all this, in that moment, you're laboring and someone in that position of authority is telling you, you know, I've seen this a thousand times. I've done this many, and this is, this is what's happening. It's very hard to speak up against that in those moments. You know, not to mention you, you might be hooked up to things. You've got a lot of eyes quickly looking at you for a quick decision. And that's why a doula can be very, very, very powerful and helpful because they can advocate for you. Exactly. And equally as notable too, is that they can arm you with the tools, at least before, you know, the chaos of the process like settles in or whatever. They can equip you with the tools to advocate for yourself too, right? Like having that person in the room and knowing that there's at least one person Mm -hmm. outside of your immediate family, if your doula often like the doula doesn't belong to the family, at least in the official sense, they don't really have a stake, you know, in like fighting for you in the general sense. Like if my sister's in there screaming, you know, on my behalf, then like that, I'm like, okay, that's my sister. Yeah. You know, she doesn't want to see me in pain or see like my pregnancy and childbirth experience, child, you know, childbirth in the hospital, but like just ensuring that like, okay, that this doesn't happen for me. I can just assume that's just like that kinship there. But when it's another party, they have no stake besides just like wanting me to be safe and well, I know that it's in like me getting to the other side of, of the childbirth experience and most of all having an empowered one that I'm like satisfied with, mm. that is a baseline. Like that is a right. That is an entitlement. Yeah. It's almost hard to hear. Like you said, it's with the definition of birth trauma, most of us in the U.S. have gone through that, you know, and not had that empowering experience. And I know, like I felt that just along the whole way, like it was like choices from the, like from the beginning of finding out I was pregnant, just through the whole birthing process, it was like, I kept having choices, like more and more limited, you know, from what I was like being told. It just felt like, yeah, I just couldn't really like, like empower myself. You know, I couldn't have that empowerment that just felt better. And maybe I would have, you know, healed a little faster after. You brought up endometriosis. And I would love it if very, very important to talk about. I know a lot of friends of mine dealing with this and feeling very unheard. Yeah. So I'm trying to remember the name of this documentary on endometriosis. I just, oh, The Last Health Taboo. So Mm. listeners should check out The Last Health Taboo because they kind of go like, into the whole, like what's going on in the healthcare system, you know, not necessarily a surprise, but it's kind of the same thing that leads like birthing people to feel uncomfortable during their like pregnancy and childbirth experience that leads to a lot of the problems that come up with endometriosis. So endometriosis is pretty much a disorder where you have tissue similar to the uterine lining growing outside of the uterus. So these like other places where it pretty much doesn't belong, sometimes it develops a little bit out and farther, but it can be found in places that like people just don't suspect. There's so much research being done right now. 
But what happens with endometriosis, one, it's something that can't be cured. And that's tricky for Mm. physicians, right? Because like as a future doctor, I know like we're trained. It's like people come to you with a problem and you need to have a cure. Physicians don't like chronic illness or chronic conditions because it's like, how do I manage this? But where we see this overlap, especially when it comes to the birthing experience is with endometriosis, what's still currently in the medical textbooks, they have not refined them yet, is that if you can control a period, then you can control endometriosis. So that's what leads to people having to get on things like hormonal birth control, even if they don't want to. All these like quote unquote solutions that are geared towards like, hey, it's this like natural embodied thing that like the feminized body does that is just not right that is causing this. A lot of people, I think the gap is like 14 years on average or at least up to. I'm going to try to find out exactly what that statistic is, but people wait years before they get a diagnosis for endometriosis, because a lot of diagnosing it is literally about somebody saying, hey, you have these symptoms and I believe you. Let's get to the bottom of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's it's the pain, women's pain not being heard. Exactly. From what I understand, it's extremely painful. I mean, I, a few people I know that couldn't leave the house, passing out from pain and medical response being like, basically toughen up. That's yeah. That's the only answer they were getting. Yeah. Follow up with your OB gyne and just like let it go. Unbelievable, really. Disheartening. Very disheartening. I mean, uh, again and again, I think, you know, women's pain being ignored or minimalized, especially um, women of color yeah. is a through line. I don't know if you're familiar with this podcast that just came out about the um, egg retrievals in uh, Yale. Have you heard about this? No. This case, basically it's a story of a, a nurse who was stealing the the drugs that would numb the women during the, the egg retrieval. She was addicted. Fentanyl. I was, I was like, what is the word? She was stealing the fentanyl and she was putting um, basically saline. And so they were having this experience, egg retrieval experience with no pain medication. Oh my God. Meanwhile, they're there screaming that I'm feeling everything. I'm feeling everything, you know? And then the doctors and nurses are like, well, we've given you as much fentanyl as, we're, as we can. You know, you're going to have to be still if you want this procedure. And, you know, there were many people in the room that should have kind of noticed, you know, um, mm-hmm. this is happening over and over again. But there's this way that we, you know, the women were made to feel like maybe there's something wrong with you that you're, uh, right. you know, somehow uh, immune to fentanyl or they just weren't taken seriously, you know, for years and years and years until it finally came out. So, you know, I was thinking about it and then one woman finally said it is like, you know, when you have a, a tooth pulled, you have more medication than this, you know, yeah. it's like why women were expected to tolerate that level of pain really is the question and should lead many of us to, you know, be thinking about what is going on that that is so normalized. Exactly. And I like that, like focusing on like the normalization, right? This is making me think about, and we talk about this in anthropology a lot, but that notion of like obstetrical hardiness, which is highly racialized, highly like it's tied to class as well. You see it in like people, regardless of race and class, just to like clarify, but you see it worse amongst like 
black women and birthing people, poor women and birthing people. But yeah, the idea that some people are more capable of bearing pain when it comes to any matters of, you know, birthing, any kind of logical kind of issues. Yeah. So that's the thing that immediately came to mind, like a a modern example of how that obstetric violence kind of is at play. What is preeclampsia and how is that kind of also part of this conversation? Oh, okay. Yeah. So we, I think this is probably a good time to talk about Tori Bowie, right? Yeah. So preeclampsia is this pregnancy complication which is basically high blood pressure and it has a capacity to become very deadly. It's actually one of the leading causes of preventable maternal mortality. So Tori Bowie died of eclampsia and eclampsia is pretty much more advanced form. So when you allow preeclampsia to kind of progress and then it worsens and that's like the fatal complication of preeclampsia. And that's me keeping it really simple. So Tori Bowie was an Olympic runner. And in 2022, the world found out about her death, right? But we didn't really know the circumstances, the conditions surrounding it. We just knew this sprinter and three-time Olympic medalist died at a really young age. And, you know, there was a lot of speculation about it. Like, you know, maybe it was her family, her husband all of this. And then we found out in June through an autopsy report that was released that Tori Bowie had a well-developed fetus and was crowning at the time of her death. Yeah, it's heavy. And the report named respiratory distress and eclampsia, right, which eclampsia is pretty much marked by this like new onset of seizures or coma, right? in a pregnant person with preeclampsia. So the same high blood pressure, but you have all these other really, really, really alarming symptoms Mm. as it progresses, right? So those were named as potential complications that led to Bowie's passing. And this is a notable time to talk about Black maternal mortality because that is the elephant in the room. So the conditions surrounding Tori Bowie's death are pretty much this like, just noxious combination of everything that plagues Black birthing people in the United States, right? And birthing people in the United States at large, you could argue. So Black birthing people experience preeclampsia and eclampsia at three to four times the rate of their white counterparts. So if you think about how it's like the leading cause, right, of maternal mortality or preventable maternal mortality, and Black birthing people are dying of this complication the most, you know that we have issues, right? Like with structural racism and how it plays into obstetric and gynecological care. But it also just reflects these current disparities in maternal mortality overall, because Black birthing people are three to four times more likely to die as a result of pregnancy and childbirth-related complications. And What we found is that after the COVID-19 pandemic, that gap actually grew. Do you know why that that is? So people lost a lot of access Mm. to birthing centers and hospitals. People lost access to like care teams because there were limits on who they could have in the room. I'm a firm believer that even like doulas not being allowed 
to come and unless they were like considered to be family also probably negatively contributed to some outcomes. It became more difficult for people to get routine care. And we know that continuous care contributes to better outcomes, right? And unfortunately, what was happening in the case of like Tori Bowie, when we continue to gain even more information about her death is so many news outlets. And we we wrote about this at Mama Glow, but like so many news outlets in well-meaning efforts to help other like women and birthing people protect themselves were like, hey, preeclampsia is like not this death sentence. You can totally work on this and come back from it and sustain a, a healthy pregnancy, have a health, like a, a survive childbirth, right? Like the language of surviving and you will be fine. But the issue is the underlying assumption, right? That like kind of downplays the effects of implicit bias and systemic racism. So Black birthing people are interfacing with health professionals that are not taking their concerns seriously. So the assumption that if Tori Bowie simply went to the hospital and like talked about it, it would have made a a difference. Like that's a dangerous assumption. Certain things have to be true, right? She would have to have a care team that cares to listen to her and won't override her voice because she's just this person in hysterics that doesn't really know what she's talking about, right? It's really disheartening. If you don't know this, no problem. I'm just curious. Do you know what some of the signs are of preeclampsia? Hmm. I know it's the high blood pressure. Sometimes people might have like swelling in the legs. Mm-hmm. I've heard of that. And water retention, but that's another issue as well because those things like water retention, so many pregnant people experience that, right? So like, how do you distinguish? between like, this is just a product of me being pregnant, right? Mm -hmm. I'm actually glad you asked that question because it's like, how do they even distinguish? So the understanding of it as like, oh, people are just simply prolonging this care and that's why it's progressing. That's how we get into these notions of like maternal blame that we talk about a lot in medical anthropology. Mm -hmm. Like the idea that when a mother unfortunately passes away, a mother or birthing person or an infant passes away, whether it's before or during the process of like childbirth, it's ultimately her fault because there was something that she could have done differently, which to our earlier point is rooted in how we're trained as medical students, right? Like the idea that there are lifestyle factors and things that you can do to determine your fate, right? And that we don't consider the contribution of Again, hospital settings, people not listening to us, people not taking our concerns seriously. The whole ecology. Yeah, exactly. I really feel that, you know, that's kind of the messaging with miscarriage. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of blame and shame on the woman. And even the whole thing with pregnancy, you know, there's a lot of language around don't do this, don't do that. You know, it makes one feel like, you know, you could, you could hurt this uh, fetus by just doing the, you know, too many laps or something, you know, there's like Mm -hmm. so much. And then you're walking on eggshells, of course, like thinking that, you know, usually from my understanding, you know, especially with miscarriages, you know, it's usually there was something genetically not right. And the, the body knows to flush it out. It's a lot more common than people know, kind of a normal process, you know? 
but women are, of course, uh, you know, embarrassed to share about it. Yeah. And just like just over time, again, like, you know, how we earlier talked about how like there are notions that are deeply ingrained that a lot of like the responses that what you consider to be natural responses to these things speak to. Right. So, again, being taught that like your body is the pathology, your embodied processes are the pathology. And that's why we have this like. I know there was like a series that I I saw online, like a a lot of women and birthing people writing about their regrets of even doing things that are like normal, like flushing the toilet because they didn't know that they were miscarrying. Mm -hmm. Like that's heartbreaking. Right. And that like haunts them because they think like, how dare I flush the toilet, you know, and thinking that they somehow contributed Mm -hmm. to the loss of their infant. Yeah. You know, so again, those notions of maternal blame of like, this is an embodied process that is happening to me and I have caused it. Yeah. Or could have done something different. Yeah. So much of that, like distrust put on self and just want to speak to briefly some distrust that folks have, you know, going to see a doctor to begin with. I saw in one of your articles, you, I think it was a quote from Latham about this is kind of the other end, how we don't know how many people coming into a gynecologist or BGYN are coming in with a previous trauma experience. And Mm -hmm. can you maybe say a little bit about how that could could, uh, affect their experience being pregnant, especially if that trauma maybe they've had in the medical sphere before? Mm -hmm. So to clarify, trauma that obstetricians might have had, you know, if someone is pregnant and they have a previous experience with trauma, Mm -hmm. maybe with abuse or maybe with distrust of someone in the medical field, yeah, kind of uh, clouds their experience. Yeah, that clarifies it. So it's like in multiple ways, sometimes in ways that we don't see. Right. Because what's happening is you have like I would say what you're describing is kind of like one of two things that happens. Like there are people who choose to continue, they continue engaging and they just kind of regard those traumatic aspects of the experience as normal, right? So then there's not a distrust because they're like, oh, like they were supposed to intervene. Like you just would not come out, you know, with like parents just talk about like their children, like, Mm. oh my God, you just would not drop. Like they had to go in there, you know? So there's that aspect of it, like the normalization that happens. And then to your point, there's a flip side of it, which again, like historically marginalized people tend to come to these settings where, where it's like, I've been traumatized. I've had my voice disregarded before. Right. So it's like that almost like bracing up for the lack of a better phrase word ever to experience these charged interactions during a time that's already marked by so much change, right? Like you're pregnant, you know? So there's that aspect of it. Yeah. There's a lot. (laughs) There's a lot that we already come in with. And there's a lot of ways that unfortunately with implicit bias, structural racism, that to talk about the longitudinal aspects of it, it's like learning about the VBAC kind of calculator and doula training was like a lot for me. Like the fact that they factor in the birthing person's race and just to name what the VBAC is, it's so vaginal birth after C-section. So they use these like race-based algorithms, right? And they pretty much systematically assign these lower scores based on race. And immediately you don't think about how that can 
contribute to these racialized health inequities, right? Because you're like, oh, it's just a calculator. It's like factoring in race. It's whatever. But when you consider that the rates of death with C-section delivery are significantly higher than just doing the vaginal delivery, right? And, and, you know, C-sections are great for people who need them, but for people who don't. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. So what's happening is the lower the score, the higher the likelihood that this birthing person will receive a C-section or another C-section. So now you've already heightened the risk of them dying of childbirth-related complications by a lot, right? Yeah. And that's just based off of something that you see is so far removed and so harmless, like a race-based algorithm. So it's that like, even like, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, even in the absence of like these hostile interactions, there's already like so many things in place by design that make it so that like for the next visit or the next pregnancy that the person might have, that could be their last compounding. A lot needs to change. Let's get to that. I I would love to hear where we're closing in on an hour. We've talked a lot about the problems and you've named some of the stats. I'll just pull out this one, which I pulled from one of your articles. And this is a a stat from 2021, the maternal Mm -hmm. mortality rate in the U.S. at 32.9 deaths per 100,000 live births, which is more than three times the rate in any other high-income country. Black birthing people three times more likely to die of pregnancy-related complications. What would you like to see? What are your recommendations for you know how we can start turning these numbers around? Oh, I love that question. I like to say like the solutions are definitely like simple, but they're not easy. Mm. I think our current maternal health landscape calls for an uprooting. Like we need to completely dismantle even though some people would say that that's not realistic, right? So it starts with what we talked about, going back, like let's reframe how we teach people about feminized bodies so that those people who grow up to take care of or who are supposed to be taking care of feminized bodies don't approach them like these pathologies that have to be managed, right? But in terms of things that we can do now, learning to engage people who are on the ground and who have an investment in taking care of birthing people that they interface with all the time. Like as a physician, like, you know, people just need to acknowledge that like, it's like your care is not going to be the kind of continuous care that ensures these positive outcomes. So just physicians learning to work alongside community-based providers so that everyone can, you know, work towards this shared goal of improving outcomes for birthing people. And then lastly, and this is me just like cutting it down, but like heightening both cultural and structural competency, right? Like we talk about cultural competency a lot, which is fair, you know, like you do want to learn to engage with people who have these different backgrounds in you. But structural competency also means understanding the factors that lie outside of the hospital setting that shapes your interactions, right? So I love that. We should all work on our cultural competency. And uh, it's ongoing, just like you said about, um, you know, that, that we'll, never, we'll never hit that perfect place because we're always improving. I would love to see your recommendations 
take place. And I know as you uh, make your way into uh, becoming a doctor, that you are going to have a profound impact on the next generation of doctors and seeing some of these changes come to play. So I'm hopeful because of you and people like you, really. Thank you so much. Thank you. Is there anything that I neglected to ask you that you want to make sure that we share today? You know, we talked a lot. Yeah, we hit on a lot. I'm going to include those great recommendations book and uh, I think it was a a film or documentary in our show notes. We'll link to those. We'll link to you and of course to Mama Glow. And this has been a wonderful conversation. I think people are going to learn a lot from having the, the chance to hear this and maybe continue to do some of their own research on these very important topics you know, educating ourselves. That's really one of the best things that we can do. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized in someone else.